I've always been somewhat of a collector, an amateur collector, okay? Nothing, uh, nothing world-changing or anything like that, nothing of any real significant value. Uh, I think my mom probably considered it just gathering junk. But, you know, I collected things, collected comic books for a while until I got tired of that and gave them away, collected football cards for a while until I got tired of them and gave most of those away or lost them or lost them in a move or, or something like that. My papa got me hooked on collecting knives. Now, that was my passion for a while. Now, when my papa and I would talk about knives, you have to understand kind of the way that we talk about it. Whatever knife it was was the best thing ever, right? That was the most valuable knife that you could possibly have. Whether it was an old worn-out pocket knife that, that the blade was had been sharpened so much that it was curved out, that was the best thing ever. That was a Boker Oak tree, buddy. That was the best knife ever made. Now, I did have some that, if you looked in the in the guides, I did have some that the guides would tell you were worth something. I, I had at one time, now, for those of you who are not knife collectors, this won't mean a thing to you, but I had a Case X 10-dot canoe knife. That was something else, right? And according to the to the guides, you'd look through that and, you know, fantasize about how much your knives were worth, and that thing was worth hundreds of dollars, according to that guide. Well, as I got older and started being more interested in money than I was in knives, I realized something. It doesn't matter what the guide says. Stuff is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Right? Anybody ever learned that lesson besides me? Uh-huh. But, but no, it says that it's worth this many hundreds of dollars. Okay, I'll give you 50 <laughs> Something's only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Things are only worth what the assessed value is in the eye of the one who wants to receive it. That's what value is, right? But there are some things that it doesn't matter what a price guide or it doesn't matter what somebody is willing to pay. It doesn't matter. There are some things in life that are of intrinsic value. They have value. They have worth in and of themselves. This morning we're going to talk about something that has so much intrinsic value it is worth giving up absolutely everything for. You know, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we, you know that we've been working through these parables in Matthew chapter 13, these stories that Jesus told about the kingdom there in Matthew chapter 13. We've been covering these one at a time, but we're going to look as this morning we're going to look at the fifth and sixth parable together because they, they cover really the exact same. They're so closely related and they play off of one another so well. You remember that up until this point, Jesus has been teaching to the crowds, but from this point forward, He moves inside and He's teaching just to the disciples inside. But as He does that, if you pay attention to, to the way that these parables are, are, are taught by Jesus, you can see that He's moving His focus closer and closer. He's drawing His focus uh, more narrow and more narrow. 
As he started off with the first two parables, they were, they were, uh, more focused on the world, a global focus. Then the next two were more focused on the church and local churches. Now he's getting to, with these two parables, he's getting down to each and every one of us. He's getting down to our heart. He's getting down to us as individuals. So while all the parables speak to us in a certain way, these two speak directly to each of us as individuals, how we're dealing with Jesus in our heart, how we're seeing the kingdom in our heart. In other words, Jesus is getting personal with us this morning. So what's He saying to us? Let's look at this first parable in verse 44 and see. Verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now in order to get these these parables, I, I think that we really need to to kind of step out of where we are right now and just go draw into our imagination. I think we have to put... Uh, put on the, the imagination of a child to be able to picture these as well as we can. So with our imagination uh, in full gear this morning, I want us to picture what's happening here. Th- this scene, it sounds very distant from where we are. But in Jesus' day, this was a very common experience to the folks that He was in the area that He was telling this story to. Throughout history, that area where Jesus was telling these parables, this area of Palestine, throughout history it has been an area of conflict. I mean, still today, you can't look through the news without hearing or seeing some sort of conflict that's going on in that area. And it's been that way throughout history. Skirmishes, terrorism, wars, those have almost been a daily part of life in that land at that time, and really forever. And you can imagine in a, in a world, in an environment where there's continual skirmishes and war, you can imagine that your stuff, your property, isn't very secure in that kind of environment, right? I mean, we get, we get just the threat of something in this country and ammunition sales and gun sales go through the roof. Can you imagine in that kind of environment how, how, how you would have a desire to secure your valuables? But then you think about the context even more. You know, we have things like banks and we have safety deposit boxes and, and you can even go buy big safes and put your stuff in a big safe. In that day, they didn't have those kinds of things, did they? So when they had something, when they had an heirloom or when they had a personal uh, nest egg or when they had something like that, in order to keep it secure... The most secure place that they could find would be to dig a hole in the yard and bury it. And that's what they did. That's what they did all throughout the land. (laughs) But there's a problem when you bury your stuff in the yard, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I can't remember what happened last week. You ever walk in a different room and you get in that room and you think, "What? what did I walk in here for? I'm not the only one. So can you imagine if years before you bury something in your yard and then you're like, I remember it was under the third rock, under the second, was it the first tree or the second tree? Um, it's out there somewhere, just get a shovel. Right? So you bury this stuff and because of memory you might forget where it was, but not just because of that, 
Remember, this is an area of war and skirmish and turmoil. So the person that buries the treasure, they might get killed. Or they might die. And the land gets passed to somebody else. And the land gets passed to somebody else. And gets passed to somebody else. Have you ever had anything passed down through your family that when you get it, I mean, at one time it had all kinds of value, but when you get it, you're like, man, this has got memories. I just, they're not my memories. Right? That's kind of what could happen. And it was common for people as they were going through the land that they had either inherited or bought or were working, they'd go through the land and they'd find buried treasure popping up all over it. Now, treasure is kind of a relative term. They'd find heirlooms or they'd find things that were important at one time. They would even find furniture. I mean, (laughs) there are historical accounts of people finding furniture in their property. It wasn't always like a, you know, we would picture a pirate's chest full of treasure. But they would find it. It was a very common thing. It was a common thing for them to dig up stuff as they were plowing their fields. Either that or erosion would start to expose stuff that had been buried generations before. And that's the picture that Jesus was painting here. And it wasn't a surprise to the disciples. They were able to shake their heads and understand. Now, here was a man. He was probably a tenant on the land. It probably wasn't his. It obviously wasn't his land, but he was probably a, a hired worker on this land. He was going about his regular day-to-day activities in a certain field. We don't know if he was plowing. We don't know if he was digging. We don't know if he was just walking along. But as he was doing his day-to-day activities, he stumbled on this treasure. Actually, he just stumbled on something. Well, is it is it trash? Is it just a shard of a clay pot? Is it junk? That's probably all it is, right? But his curiosity gets the best of him, so he digs a little bit deeper. And he, he pries open, whether it was an old clay pot or something like that, he pries that up and he finds a real treasure in it. And after he finds it, he quickly covers it up to protect it from being plundered by somebody else. And then he goes home and he joyfully gathers all of his worldly possessions and he sells them to come up with enough money to buy the whole field. Okay, so that's the story. But let me clear something up before we go on. Because I have read this before and I know there are plenty of people that have read this before and they think, man, there's something shady going on here. This guy's doing something that's 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 wrong. It's either sneaky at best or it's just flat out dishonest at worst. But this is where it helps to have a little historical context here. In that day, Jewish law, which all of these would have been familiar with, his disciples being Jews would have been very familiar with Jewish law, but in that day, Jewish law basically said, um, well, let me just give it a modern context, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That was basically what the law of the land was that day. The law was whoever found treasure or found something that had been lost, the finder was entitled to keep it. Now, on top of that, the treasure obviously didn't belong to the guy who sold the field. Because if you were selling a field and you knew that you had buried treasure in it and somebody was offering to buy the property, what would you do before you sold it? 
I'd go grab a shovel, wouldn't you? And dig it up. So obviously the guy that was selling the land didn't know that the treasure was there. It wasn't his treasure. So legally, the treasure was for whoever found it. But this guy who found the treasure, he went over and above not just the legal requirement, he went over and above the moral requirement. Because instead of just taking the treasure and being on about his business, he buried it and he went and sold everything he had so that he could buy the property so that he could have the treasure. And, and here's one, one thing that he, uh, one other way that he even went over and above the moral requirement. Because, you know, if I thought, okay, well, I'll just be nice and I'll buy this property off this guy, and here's a whole bucket full of money in the ground, so I'll just skim off a little bit of the bucket of money in the ground and use that to buy the land. But he didn't do that, did he? <laughs> no, he went home, sold everything that he had, all of his earthly possessions, to buy the land so that he could have the treasure. Now, I went through all of that just to tell you that's not the point of the parable. <laughs> okay? The point of the parable is not the morality of the guy selling and selling his stuff and buying the field. It's, it's not that. I just told you that so that we don't have a hang-up when we read this. There are plenty of people that will try to give you a hang-up over that fact and say that Jesus was trying to use an example of an immoral person for his teaching. Don't get hung up on that because this guy wasn't immoral. But that being said, this <clears throat> that's not the point of the parable. The real point of the parable is a very simple one. Are you ready for this? The point of the parable is that your inclusion in the kingdom of heaven, in other words, your salvation, is more valuable than anything the world has to offer. It's more valuable than any of your worldly possessions, anything that this world has to offer. And to further illustrate that, Jesus goes on to the next parable. In verses 45 and 46. Starting in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now when we see the word merchant, automatically, I don't know how your mind works, but automatically my mind works in our context. And you think of a merchant as like some sort of a store clerk. Well, now that wasn't who this guy was. The word used for merchant here describes a wealthy, almost like a wholesale dealer. He was a world traveler in search of things that he could sell and make money off of. Now I don't, I don't know why it's stuck in my head, but when I when I was a kid, there was this diamond company. I don't even remember the name of the company, so the ads must not have been that effective. But there was this diamond company, and the whole thing that they would drive at in their ads was how their diamonds were the best that they could possibly be because whoever the owners were, this character in the commercial, they would travel the world looking for the finest diamonds that they could possibly find. And then they'd cut out the middleman and they'd bring them back for you. Okay, maybe you didn't see those commercials. But anyway, that's the same idea of this guy. That's what this guy did. He traveled the world looking for the very best that he could find. That was this guy in Jesus' story. And in order to do that, he had to be a pearl expert. You wouldn't just send out some rookie 
that didn't know somebody like me that didn't know a plastic pearl from a cultured pearl from a real pearl. Now this guy was a pearl expert, and this guy would go anywhere. He would do anything to find the very best pearls, both for himself as a collector and for his customers. Now, like anybody in that kind of a situation, he'd keep the very best ones for himself and then sell the rest at, at a profit. There's something you need to understand about pearls in Jesus' day. It's another, another way to get into the context. I mean, pearls are valuable in our day, but they're not really that valuable. They're not really that valuable because most of the pearls that we have today are what they call cultured pearls. In other words, they'll have a, an oyster farm, <laughs> and in that oyster farm, they'll have, they'll just be able to get the pearls and select the ones that they want. Now, even with that, even with having all the oysters to select the pearls from and do the, do the tests that they can do, even at that, it still takes, from what I read, it, it takes 10,000 pearls, 10,000 oysters, to come up with enough of the right kind of grade of cultured pearl to be able to have a string of pearls today. Now you think, oh, man, that's a lot of work. Let me tell you how they got pearls back in this merchant's day, back in Jesus' day. How they got pearls back in that day <clears throat> was they were all wild. They were all naturally growing oysters. They didn't have oyster farms. And they didn't have diving equipment. So you know how they di how dived? How they dove for the oysters? And i got to work on my grammar. <laughs> you know how they dove for the oysters? They would take the, these, these guys, I don't know, um, guys that needed a job, I guess, and they would tie a rock around their waist. <laughs> and they would jump in the water, and that rock would take them down to the bottom where they could stay down long enough, you know, holding their breath, where they could stay down long enough to gather enough oysters. And when they started to run out of breath, the rock still tied to them, right? So, so they'd have to take their knife and cut the rope, and then they could swim to the top with their bag of oysters. Well, um, let's just say the survival rate wasn't very high. <laughs> Because you start to run out of air and, and you start to get kind of panicky with your knife. Anyway, many of the people who went in search of oysters, in search of pearls, would die. And then can you imagine when you finally get up to the surface and you've got a cup, bag of a couple of dozen oysters or even more than that, and, and you lay them out there and only a small percentage of them actually have pearls in them. And only a small percentage of those pearls are pure enough that they would be worthy of jewelry. So I just said all that just to get get us to understand when the Bible talks about it being a priceless pearl. See, all pearls that were sold as jewelry were viewed as priceless. It was a big deal in, in historical writings when Cleopatra had two pearls because that's how priceless they are. And this guy had a collection of pearls, but he found that one. And that's what he spent his whole life doing, was searching for that one. 
that one perfect pearl. And he knew that perfect pearl had to be out there. He looked at it, looked for it his whole life, but he never found it. That's why he was still searching and still searching and still searching. Not so much for the money. If he had pearls, other pearls to sell, this guy had plenty of money. So it wasn't about the money. The money was just fine. The money didn't satisfy. But then after seeking his whole life, there it was right in front of him. There it was. The pearl of all pearls. ESV says, pearl of great value. That sounds kind of cold, doesn't it? King James calls it the pearl of great price. I love the way the CSB interprets it. Calls it the priceless pearl. He finally found this priceless pearl. That seems to capture the meaning of it the best. This pearl was so priceless to the merchant that he gathered up all of the other extremely valuable pearls that he had in all of his markets. That he gathered up all of his collection that he'd been collecting his whole life. Gathered up all of those and he sold them. On top of that, it says that he sold everything that he had. So that means that he sold his means of transportation. He sold all the tools of his trade. He sold everything. He was done looking for pearls. He found the one. He was finished earning a living from pearls. He was finished collecting. He was finished studying. He was done admiring pearls from all over the world. He was done because he found the one. He was completely and fully satisfied with this one priceless pearl that he found. His priceless, perfect pearl. So what's the point? The point is the same as the first parable. Your inclusion in the kingdom of heaven, in other words, your salvation is more valuable than anything, anything, anything that this world has to offer. That's the point of these two parables. But with that being said, I want you to understand some things that Jesus is telling us on the way to getting to that main point. First thing I want to tell you is really the most obvious, and that's that your salvation is priceless. Your salvation is priceless. You know, at one time or another, I think, I think everybody, whether we admit it or not, I think everybody has a problem at one time or another with self-worth. We can, whether it's comparing ourselves to somebody else or whether it's, whether it's a low point in your life during a period of depression or whether it's something that's been brought on by abuse or neglect, sometimes you just don't think you're worth very much. Sometimes you might think that oh, there's nothing in me that's worth saving. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Nothing could be further from the truth. Amen? You are of infinite worth. But you're not of infinite worth because of how much self-esteem that you can generate you can't stand in front of the mirror and tell yourself how much you're worth and that makes you somehow worth something. That's not what your self-worth, that's not what your, your infinite worth is based on. 
It's not based on your self-esteem training. It's not based on how much mindfulness you can do or how much centering you do or how much self-care you can give yourself. No. See, you... I just said you are of infinite worth. The only reason that you are of infinite worth is because you are not the treasure. You are not the precious pearl. You're you're the one, just like me, that's just stumbling along in the field. Or you're the one that's always searching and always searching and always searching and always trying to fill that void and never being satisfied. No, you're not of infinite worth because of who you are. You're of infinite worth because of who God is. Amen? God is the one who created you. God is the one who called you. God is the one who sought you. God is the one who bought you with the precious blood of His only begotten Son. You are of infinite worth because you were saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is your treasure. Jesus is your priceless pure, priceless pearl. Your salvation is priceless. Second, your salvation is free, but it costs you everything. Now, just so there's no misunderstanding here, there is absolutely nothing you could possibly do to ever try and earn your salvation. Your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to His Word alone, for God's glory alone. There is nothing you could possibly do to earn your salvation. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't inherit it. You can never deserve it. And you can never, ever lose it. It's free. But oh, how infinitely costly it was. See, your salvation cost God the death of His only begotten Son on the cross. But not only was your salvation infinitely costly to God, your salvation will cost you everything as well. Just a few pages before our passage, you don't have to turn there, but I, you could just write this off in the margin. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. I think that passage sums this up pretty well. Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me, take his cross, take his instrument of torture and death, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen to me. As I said, there is nothing that you could possibly do to earn your salvation. But when you're saved, that means that you have a new master. That means that you're no longer the master of your life. Your salvation means that you have a new master. Savior Jesus will not be tacked onto a life that you say that you're still on the throne of. Savior Jesus cannot be separated from King Jesus. That's why in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells us to count the cost before following Him. As a believer, you are no longer king. You are no longer ruler of your life. Jesus is. And when Jesus is your king, that means that everything that you are, 
That means that everything that you have, that means that everything you'll ever be belongs to Him. You've laid it down at His feet. The Bible makes it pretty clear you can't serve two masters, doesn't it? You can't serve yourself as master and Jesus as master at the same time. Either Jesus is Lord of all your life or He's not Lord at all in your life. So you can't have the priceless pearl while you're still holding on to your less than priceless pearl collection. You can't hold on to your cheap knockoff pearls and still have the priceless pearl. Your salvation is priceless and your salvation is free, but your salvation costs Jesus everything He was and it costs you everything you are. Third, your salvation is not in plain sight. Now notice how salvation was found by these two people in the parables. This first guy... Man, he was just stumbling along in his day-to-day life. He wasn't looking for a thing. But he found it. Just minding his own business. And then here it was almost like he tripped over this thing, wasn't he? Salvation came to him completely, unexpectedly, kind of like it did with the Apostle Paul. You remember the Apostle Paul that we spent so much time studying in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul was minding his own business, doing doing his day-to-day task, heading to Damascus, and the Lord... Saved him. The merchant was different. The merchant was looking hard, wasn't he? He was searching. He was seeking. He was a seeker. Maybe as he was seeking, he he was looking at seeking the pearls for money. Maybe he was looking at the pearl of entertainment. Maybe he was seeking the pearl of family. Maybe he was seeking the pearl of religion. Maybe he was seeking the pearl of sex. Maybe he was seeking the pearl of achievement. Maybe he was seeking the pearl of religion or good works or social justice or a hundred other things. Maybe those were the pearls that he was trying to be satisfied with. All the expensive, costly, valuable, rare, sought-after pearls. All of those things, but none of them could fill the hole that he had inside. So he continued seeking. He continued searching until he finally found what he was looking for. The point is, salvation is readily available to all who will believe, but it's not in plain sight. So you can't find salvation just by hanging out in creation. Hanging out in creation will let you know that there is someone bigger than you are. But you can't find salvation just hanging out in creation. You can't find salvation through your philosophical studies. You can't find creation just through observing. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Salvation comes when a person hears or reads or sees the gospel message of salvation through Christ and God opens their heart and they believe what they've seen or read or heard. Now sometimes that happens unexpectedly when a person wasn't looking for it. Sometimes it happens when a person is actively seeking. But either way... It's a work of God that only happens through the faithful proclamation of the Gospel. That's why we have to pray that people will be saved. That's why we have to pray 
that the old man on the rooftop and his daughter that was in the house we just read about. That's why we have to pray that they'll get saved. That's why we have to pray that our friends who don't know Christ, that's why we have to pray that they'll be saved. And that's why we have to proclaim the Gospel. That's how people are going to get saved. We pray that they'll get saved and we'll proclaim the Gospel. So I want to close this morning with just three quick questions for you. Now, as I ask these questions, I know it's very tempting to start wanting to... Anytime I say that we're wrapping up or close, it's very tempting to start packing your stuff up and zipping Bibles. I'm, I'm going to beg you not to do that. Don't mentally check out on me now. Because these questions are for you. And these questions have eternal consequences. First question. Do you love Jesus enough that you're willing to give up everything for Him? If not, then you need to remember Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. He said, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Are you willing to give up everything for Jesus? Second question is very similar to the first one. What are you valuing more than you value your relationship with Christ? If you need some help figuring that out, just go home and open up. I was going to say open up your checkbook, but half the people in the world don't have checkbooks anymore. Open up your bank register. Or open up your calendar. That can kind of give you an indication of what you're valuing. Let me put it bluntly. Whatever you value more than Jesus is what you're really worshiping. Worship is not measured by how loud you sing in your car when you're playing Spirit FM. Worship is measured by what you value most. So what are you really valuing? What are you really worshiping? Finally, the last question is, have you found what you're looking for? Are you still seeking meaning or fulfillment or contentment or joy in your life? Is there still that deep longing in your life? Let me tell you, if you're seeking those things, if you're seeking meaning and fulfillment and love and joy, if you're seeking those things first, you're never going to find them. I, I heard a commencement speech a few weeks ago that just has really stuck in my head like a splinter. And this person, this believer, was saying that you know you need to pursue after all of these happiness and fulfillment and all of you need to pursue after these things and find out who and in the pursuit of that you'll find out who God made you to be. That's wrong. If you pursue those things first, you'll never find fulfillment. Pursue God. Pursue Jesus. Chase hard after Jesus. 
If you seek hard after Jesus, He'll give you all of those things and more. He'll be your treasure that surpasses everything in your life. You see that when when the man sold the field, it said that for joy he sold everything that he had for the treasure. He'll be your priceless pearl that's worth ditching every unfulfilled pearl, unfulfilling pearl that you have in your life. All you have to do is come to Him. Seek Him, and He'll be found. Ask for Him, and you'll receive. Knock, and the door of salvation will be opened to you. Let's pray. Father, it's my prayer that that Your Spirit this morning will show us where our treasure really is. Father, that Your Spirit will reveal to each of us where we're placing our value, what we're valuing most in our lives. And Father, as Your Spirit shows us as Your Spirit holds that mirror up to each of us, if our true, if the one that we truly value the most is not Jesus, then Lord, I ask that today would be a day of repentance. That we would turn from seeking fulfillment in all those other ways and that we would turn to Jesus as our treasure, as our priceless pearl. Father, our salvation is not marked by walking an aisle or getting wet in a baptistry. Our salvation is marked by whether or not Jesus is our treasure. So, Father, as Your Spirit has shown us that this morning, Lord, I ask that no one would leave this place without having been willing to get rid of everything and follow Jesus. You said that no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of following You. So, Father, may we be willing to forsake all to follow Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.